Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh Dehaz, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I'm Christine Van Gein, the CCF's litigation director. In today's episode, we have an interview that our executive director, Joanna Barron, recorded earlier this morning with an expert on the Israeli judicial system who gives his reaction to the Supreme Court decision to strike down one of Benjamin Netanyahu's key judicial reforms. And I'll tell you about a BC court decision that will at least temporarily block a law aimed at preventing drug users from shooting up in parks, transit stations, and business entryways. And we'll share our bad legal takes of the week. But first, I'm going to tell you about what looks to me like an outrageous attack on freedom of expression in Prince Edward Island. Back in September, John Robertson, who's a municipal councillor in a very small village called Murray Harbour PEI, decided to write a message on his own private property. John owns one of these signs with the plastic letters that you can change for the occasion that you often see outside of, you know, churches and schools. And he actually got this sign from the village in a yard sale and he put it on his own private property and he's been using it to express various viewpoints, sometimes controversial. And one message that he wrote said, truth, mass graves, hoax, reconciliation, redeem Sir Johnny's integrity. Now, obviously, he was talking about how the media back in 2021 printed the shocking stories that said there was a mass grave with 215 bodies of Indigenous children found using ground penetrating radar near a former residential school in, in Kamloops, BC. And you'll recall that this prompted a national outcry about how Indian residential schools amounted to genocide. And many people began to think that after this discovery, not only were Indigenous children separated from their families and their culture and concentrated together with essentially assimilation as the goal, which is itself a a horrible thing to contemplate, but also that these poor children had been, you know, killed en masse. And uh, the whole situation started looking more and more like what most people picture when they think about genocide, which is where you purposefully, you know, killed members of uh, an ethnic group with the intent of eradicating them. You know, obviously residential schools led to egregious human rights violations, and it's really important that we acknowledge that horrible chapter in our history. But the problem with the mass grave story is that it's not entirely clear that these were mass graves at all. You know, other than the ground penetrating radar that discovered these anomalies, there's scant evidence that these are necessarily bodies and if they are bodies they probably are an unmarked grave so basically a cemetery that was poorly cared for and you know we don't really know if it is bodies and even if it is whether they were killed by things like diseases and it's all very sad but that didn't stop you know justin trudeau from demanding that everyone sort of lower the canadian flag to half mast and this also led to two toppling statues of John A. Macdonald, our first prime minister, who was far from perfect and has this residential school stain on his on his history, but also did great things like, you know, start this country against all odds. So anyway, my point is that it's really under, easy to understand why Mr. Robertson might see this as a hoax. You know, I probably wouldn't use that word. Uh, but he's well within his rights to express himself that way. 
And, you know, this is a political issue. And the reason we have freedom of expression in this country is so that we can say things that are unpopular or controversial, but that later turn out to be true. Because over and over again in history, the people saying uh, controversial things in the long run turned out to be right. And so uh, the problem here is that Councillor Robertson faced a total witch hunt by people on PEI who denounced him as racist and went after him first on social media, then by calling this village office. And within a few days, three of his fellow councillors had launched a formal complaint against him under what else, Christine, the town's code of conduct. Now, we've talked about codes of conduct before. They're absolutely insidious and they're increasingly being used to shut down politicians who express unpopular opinions, whether from the left or from the right. But to me, this seems to be the most egregious example because uh, this doesn't relate in any way to the councillor's job. It's an opinion he expressed on a political issue on his private property that has nothing to do with the municipality. But if you read the town's code of conduct, it's hopelessly vague and overbroad. It says things like, you know, members of council are expected to arrange their private affairs in a manner that promotes public confidence and members of council must avoid behavior that would constitute an act of disorder or misbehavior. And presumably they're, what they're alleging he did wrong here has something to do with that promotion of public confidence or misbehavior, but it's hard to tell from the media coverage what section of the code of conduct he's even accused of, of breaking. Anyhow, the, the um, village hired a former police officer to investigate this poor man for his political speech, and the officer did a report that concluded he'd violated this code of conduct. So what happened next was council suspended him for six months, demanded that he pay a $500 fine which is the maximum, by the way, and that he write a letter of apology. And there was a meeting where people each took turns going to the microphone to denounce him. But it gets worse. Um, when he didn't pay that fine by the deadline imposed, the council asked the minister in charge in the province to conduct an inquiry. And the minister, whose name is Rob Lance, rather than conducting an inquiry, decided that he would simply order Councillor Robertson to comply within 48 hours or resign. And he gave him a December 31st deadline to resign, which I understand has now been extended because apparently John is out of the country. And to me, this is just, it's really scary um, that a town council and a, a minister can demand somebody apologize and pay a fine for speaking out on their own private property about a political issue unrelated to town council business and that the minister can then force that person out of office if they don't you know mouth this fake apology and pay the fine so this had me thinking back to the sarah jama incident in in ontario where an mpp was censured for her arguably anti-semitic speech after october 7th but in her case nobody forced her to resign and nobody should be forcing politicians to resign because they're elected by the people and it's only the people that should be able to throw them out. Um, so to me, you know, if city councils and town councils can vote to oust a fellow politician for their speech, then we're moving really far away from democracy. Clearly something has gone wrong here, Christine. Um, what's What are your thoughts on this situation? So I would not put a sign like that on my property. <laughs> I don't uh, I don't like 
the sign really uh i i kind look i kind of get what he's saying i i guess uh there has been really confusing coverage about the residential schools and the graves um and and that confusing coverage continues right the cbc when reporting on this story said that the sign on his property called the detection of unmarked graves at the former sites of residential schools in the last years, few years, a mass grave host, uh, hoax. And that's literally not what the sign says, right? The sign says, truth, mass grave hoax. And that's not saying that the detection of unmarked graves is a hoax. It's saying calling, I, I mean, my interpretation is saying that there are mass graves is what he thinks the hoax is. And it's, it's just a fact that there there aren't even allegations that there are mass graves, right? The a mass grave would be, you know, one grave with many bodies in it. And and there has been a lot of reporting that that is what has allegedly been found. And there that's just not true. And and if you talk to the indigenous communities in Kamloops, like they're not alleging that there is a mass grave they say that there's ground penetrating radar that shows what may be burial sites, unmarked burial sites. And that's a very different thing from a mass grave. A mass grave indicates some sort of um, complete disregard for the dignity of bodies where they're just, you know, in um, scenes of war, you would expect to see mass graves. Scenes of genocide, you'd expect to see mass graves where bodies are not um, treated with any respect or dignity. They're just placed in a hole in the ground and, and covered. Um, so look, I understand that he is saying that there's, I mean, my interpretation is he's saying there's no mass graves and that calling it a mass grave is a hoax. Uh, but even the reporting on it today is confusing that. Um, another report from CTV says, Local councillor John Robertson found himself in hot water due to a sign he placed on his property, which called the discovery of mass graves at some Indian residential schools a hoax. That's what CTV wrote, you know, I think yesterday or the day before. But again, there has been no discovery of mass graves. There has been potentially the discovery of individual unmarked burial sites. There has been no discovery of mass graves. So there's there's, I, I understand why he is upset that media keeps calling this mass graves when they're still continuing to call them mass graves. Look, if I'm wrong and there is some allegation that there is one mass grave, please let me know. But that is not at all what I have, have seen. So the overall thing that is important to know about this case is not actually even what the sign said or what it didn't say. It's the idea that the one level of government can force the resignation of another level of government, that the the premier of the province can say, you are no longer allowed to be a town councillor because it's supposed to be our, um, our, our you know, democratic process that resolves problems of elected people doing things that we disagree with. It's not supposed to be that 
you know, the, the premier just comes in and says, you're not allowed to be elected anymore. That's not how democracy works. And this is, I would say, different from the JAMA situation because the the party system allows, you know, parties to kick someone out of their caucus. They control their own process of their party. And they say, we don't want you in our party anymore. It's ours. You're out. But they don't kick that person out of the legislature completely. They don't say you can't sit here anymore. You're no longer elected. That's crazy to me, even considering that town councils are statutory creatures. Um, they're not constitutional, um, established by our constitution the way, you know, the, the provincial legislatures are. Anyway, it's a lot of complicated thoughts there. Uh, I'm really interested to see what's going to happen with this. And I think we should follow it closely and, and monitor what happens in this, this crazy story. Um, I'll move on now to my news headline. Mine is about an injunction in British Columbia. So for those of you not aware, the NDP government in BC has been doing a pilot project to deal with extremely high levels of drug use and overdoses in that province. And the experiment is basically to decriminalize small personal use amounts of hard drugs. So at the request of the province, at the request of British Columbia, the federal government created an exemption from the Controlled Drug Drugs and Substances Act. The exemption applies to adults, and it applies to the possession of up to 2.5 grams of hard drugs. And hard drugs are uh, different opioids like heroin and fentanyl, as well as cocaine, meth, and MDMA. And the federal exemption says it's granted in consideration of the fact that too many lives have been lost due to overdose, that substance abuse is a health and social issue, and that stigma leads people to hide their drug use. And I'm sure people are going to have pretty strong opinions related to the exemption. You know, from a policy perspective, I certainly have opinions. Uh, I, I sometimes think that I'm a really bad libertarian because I don't think legalizing hard drugs like fentanyl is a good policy. And I actually think that stigmatizing drug use, especially hard drugs, is like fentanyl is good. I think we we should stigmatize drug use. We should, as a society, say drug use is bad and discourage it. But from a policy perspective, I I do not really think that putting drug addicts in jail is a real solution. Uh, they're criminal dealers, sure, but you know, small level addicts. I don't think you're going to solve their the pro societal problems by putting them in jail. And I also think it's really important to recognize that we can have compassion for individual people whose lives have been destroyed by drugs and also think that drugs are bad and people shouldn't use them and that people who are addicted to drugs should be encouraged as much as possible to stop using drugs. And if people are interested in that kind of perspective, there's a YouTube channel that I love called Soft White Underbelly, where a, you know, a straight edge, totally sober, never having used drugs, photo photographer and um, artist interviews street uh, drug addicts uh, about their lives and what led them to be use drugs. And um, he, with some of them, he follows their descent into addiction and others he um, 
he documents their progression into sobriety and it's, or at least attempts at sobriety. And it's a really uh, beautiful project about developing compassion for people who live with drug addiction while simultaneously being able to say drugs are destructive and have ruined these people's lives. Um, but all of this is sort of beside the point in the case that I'm talking about today. So this case arises because the federal government, in showing some restraint in creating this exemption, uh, they put limits on the exemption. Uh, you could still not possess drugs in some places, uh, schools, daycares, airports, splash pads, playgrounds, and a few other places. Uh, but even with that restraint came a caveat. According to the official text of the another piece of legislation, which was passed in November of 2023, the it, it's called the Restricting Public Consumption of Illegal Substances Act. Police were discouraged from actually arresting people who violated um, these res certain restrictions. And if anyone was using drugs in, in uh, child-centric areas, police were instructed to direct them elsewhere rather than arrest them. So this was um, a, no a separate law from the federal um, carve out to the exemption. This is a provincial law, the Restricting Public Consumption of Illegal Substances Act, and it placed these partial restrictions on consumption of drugs rather than just possessing them in public places. And it said people can't consume drugs, uh, copying the federal carve out, but also adding a few others in certain places, playgrounds, splash pads skate parks, but it added sports fields, beaches, and outside of businesses and residences within six meters and, and bus stops. And as I said, the, the law would allow police to order people to cease using the drugs in that specified area or to leave the area, and people who refused could be fined up to $2,000 or imprisoned for up to six months. Now, as I said, the text of that law the official text said that police were officially discouraged from arresting. Um, they were just directed elsewhere. Uh, the the law would also give the police discretion to, uh, to seize and destroy the drugs. So all of these things working together was sort of opposed by an activist group called the Harm Reduction Nurses Association. And in particular, they were objecting to the consumption um, the restri restraint on consuming drugs in public places. The 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 law that, that was passed in November that said you can't you know shoot up in a playground. So they brought a constitutional challenge, arguing um, that prohibiting the consumption of drugs in these places, including child centered places, violated the charter rights of drug users. They said that it threatens the life, safety, and health of drug users protected by Section 7 of the Charter, and they said it threatened their life, safety, and health because uh, many of these drug users lack safe indoor locations where drug use is permitted, and they argued that the law would drive drug users into more remote places uh, and isolated locations where they're far away from services and emergency care. Like, my view on this is that fentanyl use is inherently life-threatening, uh, it threatens the lives and safety of anyone who uses it, no matter where you use it. 
and arguing that using fentanyl on a playground versus in an alley is more or less dangerous is really, you know, splitting some imaginary hairs here. Like your risk of dying in either of those scenarios is outrageously high. Now, in support of their charter challenge, the harm reduction nurses brought an injunction to stop the consumption law from coming into force until the charter challenge could be heard. So an injunction is sort of like pressing pause on the that, that law. Now, constitutional injunctions are really, really difficult to obtain. We know this because we have tried a few times to get constitutional injunctions uh, during the pandemic, uh, and we were not successful. So to get a, an injunction, uh, for a constitutional injunction, there's a three-part test. Basically, you need to demonstrate that there's a serious question to be tried, that there will be irreparable harm, so harm that can't be compensated through um, monetary damages, and that assessing the balance of convenience, uh, sorry, you need to assess the balance of convenience while taking into account the public interest. And the public interest can go, I guess, both ways in this case. So even though these injunctions are really hard to obtain, the Chief Justice of the BC, BC Supreme Court, Justice Hinkson, who, by the way, also heard our uh, our case in the vaccine challenge, <laughs> vaccine passport challenge in BC, did not side with us in that case. So he ruled in favor of the harm reduction nurses. He imposed a temporary injunction saying that irreparable harm could be caused if the law came into force. And that injunction is now in place, stopping the law on public consumption until March 31st. So just to be clear, this is not a decision on the merits. The charter challenge still needs to be argued. This is just, as I said, sort of like pushing pause on the enforcement of that law until the result of that. Well, I guess not necessarily until the result, but until March 31st. It doesn't mean that the decision on the merits will be successful. And just by analogy, there was a somewhat similar constitutional challenge related to prostitution last year. Uh, there were some restrictions on soliciting prostitution in public places frequented by children, and some sex workers, escorts, and advocacy groups had made similar arguments to what's being argued here, saying that you know not being able to solicit sex in on playgrounds violated their Section Seven rights and made them less safe. Uh, but the courts did not accept that from the sex workers, so it could go the same way in this drug user case. But in what it means in the meantime, until March or the end of March, BC police cannot now approach people using drugs in most public places and ask them to leave unless they're doing some other criminal thing. And um, there's some interesting quotes in response to the decision. So the BC public safety minister, Mike Farnworth, said that the government was concerned by the ruling against the law, which is meant to prevent the use of drugs in places frequented by children and families. And he said the decision temporarily prevents the province from regulating where hard drugs are used, something every other province does every day. Uh, I agree. And, and the leader of the opposition in BC, Kevin Falcon, also had a pretty good line about it. He said it will still be illegal in most communities in BC to enjoy a glass of wine in a pit with at a picnic in a park while unchecked consumption of potentially lethal drugs like crystal meth, crack cocaine, and fentanyl in the same park remains the reality of this NDP government. 
So yeah, you can't drink a glass of wine and have a charcuterie board in a park, but you can you can smoke crystal meth on the jungle gym. I mean, it's pretty weird, pretty weird result. Um, so my view on this is the government uh, opened this can of worms uh, with with this request for the exemption and then the mess of of creating carve outs to the exemption. Uh, I do not view this as a reasonable solution to the opioid crisis, especially when combined with other British Columbia policies like the so-called safe supply initiatives where uh, free drugs are handed out by the government. Uh, and frankly, if I lived in British Columbia, I would be worried about where I could take my kids to play outside. And if you're a wealthy person in Vancouver where you have a backyard, you know, in your $5 million home, you can play outside with your kids. But if you're just, you know, a regular hardworking person who lives in Vancouver in a townhouse or a condo, if you want to play with your kids outside, I guess you have to expect to step over needles and unconscious people in order to play outside. And that is crazy. Josh, any reaction here? Yeah, I have so much to say about this issue. So, you know, I think you're right that the government opened the can of worms itself, but I think that goes all the way back to, you know, Insight, and the, which was the first safe injection site in the country in Vancouver. And the advocates that pushed for that safe injection site for years, um, of course, since it opened, have said, oh, it's been nothing but a wonderful success and it saved all of these lives. But I don't think that's true necessarily if you look at the trend, because the trend is more and more and more people are addicted to drugs and on them for you know decades until they inevitably die. And the number of overdoses just increases every year. It doesn't go down. I mean, it maybe has gone down a little bit recently because there was a huge spike when people were alone in the pandemic. But I think overall, as much as you know, the, the libertarian in me thinks that governments shouldn't be out outlawing things like, you know, just using drugs, they, it causes a lot of harm. And these policies have been a big failure. The, the other issue is that, yes, just using drugs on its own is not causing anybody else harm. It's just causing harm to yourself. But drug users are also the ones in most cases doing all this petty crime that actually adds up to a really big problem for the rest of us, you know. It also destroys the lives of their children. If if you're a drug user with a child, it's extremely destructive. Yeah, it is. It's destructive in in so many ways. Like, for example, like you say, you know, our parks, like my local area, there's there's needles on bus shelters, needles in parks, needles where that kids are picking up. Kids are picking up bags of of, of fentanyl enough to to kill their entire kindergarten class. You need to like force people to 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 do treatment or else they're just going to keep causing destruction to themselves or to others and we've we've spent all of our time and resources on so-called harm reduction through giving people hard drugs and setting up these programs where they can go and inject themselves and that's not the approach we should be taking we should be spending the money on on residential treatment that is immediately available and that's available for a long enough period that people can actually you know, get off drugs. So I think this is just a failed policy. And, you know, you point out this is an, an injunction. So it's just sort of a, a temporary block on the law until the full arguments can be made. But this judge is bought into some really scary claims by the by the harm reduction advocates, like the idea that 
that users wouldn't need to shoot up in parks if only there were enough safe injection sites. Well, that's not moving. That's not helping the problem. People are still having their lives ruined by addiction and by all of the externalities of that addiction, like the crime. So anyway, I could talk about this for days, but I think it's a really scary decision and I'm afraid to see what the the final result is. And if it's if it's negative and they say that, yes, you have a right to, you know, smoke crack in parks beside children and to stand in the doorway of businesses and inject drugs, um, I think it would be an example of where people should, politicians should consider the notwithstanding clause because I don't think the charter ever meant to protect um, policies that are this this crazy from um, the democratically elected governments. And I noticed the BC Conservatives, which is sort of an upstart party with only a couple seats at this point, has said they will use the notwithstanding clause on this if they need to. So I'm curious to see whether the uh, BC uh, Liberals or what are they called now? BC United. Yeah, I think it's BC United. Yeah. And, and it basically the government is is NDP. Yeah, or if even the government I don't itself. think an NDP government will use the notwithstanding clause on this. I, I'm very skeptical of that. That would be surprising, but this BC NDP government has been pretty responsive to um to the public's concern on this. So you never know. It's unlikely, but I guess we'll we'll have to wait and see. So I'm gonna stop talking about that because I could literally go on go, go on all day. And I'm thinking we'll take our break. And on the other side of that, we'll have Joanna's pre-recorded interview with Russell Shalev um, on the uh, Israeli Supreme Court decision. Hi, I'm Russell from the CCF. In case you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, The Freedom Update, to get updates from me every week about our ongoing work and the legal stories in Canada that keep us interested. It's one of the best ways to stay up to date. Subscribe at the ccf.ca slash freedom update. So this week, in a decision that was split 8-7, Israel's Supreme Court struck down the reasonableness law passed by Bibi Netanyahu's government in July, which would have enabled the court to overturn a decision of the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, that according to them, uh, did not meet standards of reasonableness. And this is the first time the court has overturned part of a basic law, which is basically a quasi-constitutional law in Israel. And this has been called Israel's second judicial revolution after the first judicial revolution in the 80s and 90s brought by uh, Justice Aaron Barak. So the eight justices who struck down this part of the judicial overhaul argued that they were left with little choice, given that the law posed a potential danger to Israeli democracy. And on the other side were seven dissenting justices who thought that this was a judicial overreach to annul a law which just curbed judges' ability to use reasonableness as a legal standard to, to vitiate government decisions. Uh, so the justices in the majority, led by soon-retiring Chief Justice Esther Hayut, argued that the standard of reasonableness was an important tool for judges to protect against arbitrary government overreach, particularly in Israel, which has no written or formal constitution. And she appealed to the principles of Israel's declaration of independence to find this power. So I spoke to uh, Israeli lawyer and judicial expert Russell Shalev about his thoughts about this decision. 
Okay, so I'm here with Russell Shalev, who is an Israeli lawyer uh, and a researcher with the Kohelet Policy Forum based in Jerusalem. Russell, thank you so much for chatting with us. Hi, it's a pleasure to, to be here. Great. Uh, so what is your reaction to this week's decision from the Supreme Court? So in, in, the, in the midst of right, Israel's uh, biggest crisis, uh, probably since the, since the 1948 war, uh, the Supreme Court has come out with argu arguably Israel's most dramatic decision uh, ever, which 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 sets out the uh, the powers of the Supreme Court versus uh, versus versus the Knesset versus the government, and and undeniably uh, makes the Supreme Court the supreme government body in 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 Israel. And Israel now has a has a form of government that that really is uh, that really is unprecedented in the in the in the Western world, uh, really officially being declared a, a, a juristocracy. So a very, a very dramatic, a very dramatic uh, ruling. Yeah. So can you walk us through how exactly it is that essentially a basic law, which is quasi-constitutional, how the court found, a majority of the court found that that could be unconstitutional? That just seems really odd as a constitutionalist. Right. Okay. So just to, um, to give a very brief uh, background, right, Israel never adopted uh, a constitution. And the, the Knesset came to a compromise in the 50s that said that Israel's constitution will be built uh, piece by piece. In the early years of the state, the Knesset passed what were called basic laws that, that largely dealt with how, how government institutions worked, how the Knesset, the parliament worked, the, the presidency, the government. And, and they, they weren't seen to, to have constitutional status until a final constitution would be would be adopted. In, in the beginning of the of the 90s, the Knesset passed two uh, two basic laws that were the first basic laws that dealt with human rights. And then in in 1994, the the Supreme Court ruled in a very a very a very important decision, the, the the Mizrahi Bank decision. And in that decision, it it said that Israel was now a, a constitutional democracy. Um, and it it ruled that that those basic laws, and then in later decisions, the rest of the basic laws were now at a constitutional status, that they were at the highest level of of, of Israel's uh, normative pyramid. You 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 already had several decisions in the interim where the where the court played around with the idea that that it could potentially strike down basic laws under certain circumstances. But it, but it, but it had never, but it had never happened. And now this ruling that that came out was the first ruling in which, uh, in which a court struck down basic basic laws. So, so there were there were several um, ways in which the court came to ruling on its own authority to strike down basic laws. One way was that the um, the court said that that Israel's constitutional history, let's say, had had developed. Uh, two, two, two limitations on the on the Knesset's power to adopt the constitution, and those basic limitations are Israel's democratic status and Israel's Jewish status, and 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 anything that would that would violate or that would that would that would harm the 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 core of those concepts, the the uh, the Supreme Court would have the would have the ability to strike down. The court said that uh, the, the 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 limitations that the Knesset passed on what's called uh, 
reasonableness on the court's ability to uh, to to strike down certain administrative decisions violated the core of Israel's democratic status. So uh, so that that's 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 what that's one way that the, that the court reached that. And another, I think, very uh, very interesting, very uh, creative uh, way um, that, uh, that that was said is that uh, above above the basic laws is Israel's declaration of independence, which the, the the court kind of played a played a word game and said it's not a constitution, but it it, it sets limits on constitutional abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the right the Israeli uh, Declaration of Independence right is a is a political document, and somehow in an interesting um, let's say legal creativity, uh, this this got this got super constitu- constitutional status. Right. Um, but uh, what's what is uh, what is so amazing from the court's perspective? Uh, what's so convenient about using the Declaration of Independence is the fact that, first of all, it doesn't actually say right any of those of those things. Right. It it, it says that Israel will be a state that will give equal rights to all of its uh, citizens. So the court can read whatever it wants into that. But also, it's a historical document from 75 years ago. So there's no way, and like even like even the most uh, rigid constitution in the world, the, the American Constitution, the Canadian Constitution, which have some mechanism of of, of amendment. How do you how do you how, how do you you know amend a document from 75 years ago? You need know, to build a time machine and go back. So uh, so 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 the court gave itself a super constitutional status that can't be amended in any way by by Israel citizens. Okay, so last question, really briefly, given that obviously the focus of the country is elsewhere right now and the country was more divided than it had ever been on October 6th and is now more united than ever. What has the reaction been in the media overall to this decision? I think that, I think that the, the reaction has been, has been muted. Even the, uh, the, the, the sides that were most critical of, of judicial activism uh, realize that 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 now is not the time to to reignite uh, to reignite this argument. I hope that uh, that that the question of the the balance of powers between uh, between Israel's institutions right after after the war, where that that will be able to have a a serious, dispassionate and more and more objective uh, more objective discussion. Because I think I, I I believe that there that there are also people who that that that, that there are people. Both on the right and both on the on the left, who who realize that a situation in which you have, which you have a constitution created by the judiciary that can't be changed by the citizens in any way, in which the final word belongs to the judges, who unlike unlike in Canada, like in other countries, are not selected by the elected officials, right? Is is not a healthy situation. It's 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 not a democratic situation. Yeah, fair. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Russell. We really appreciate having your perspective. Okay. My pleasure. Well, that's pretty fascinating stuff. I've been wondering a lot about an insider's perspective. So thanks for that, Joanna. Now let's move on to our bad legal takes. I will start with mine. My bad legal take this week comes from Ottawa lawyer, Paul Champ. And for context of this bad legal take, which was a tweet He is the lawyer who brought the class action against the Freedom Convoy for honking, and he represented the Ottawa Residents Association in the Public Order Emergency Commission. Now, 
look, I don't know what Paul's deal is here. I think maybe he's just trying to be a troll or maybe he has no self-awareness. But what he did is he reposted a tweet about a $490 fine that someone received in Ottawa for using a megaphone at a Palestinian protest. And Champ said, this is an affront to our deepest and most important democratic values, the right to freedom of expression and freedom of assembly, a ticket for using a megaphone for a couple of hours on a public street to protest against a horrific war, unacceptable. Now on its face, I, of course, agree that the right to freedom of assembly and expression are core to our fundamental freedoms and our constitution, and they are a core part of democracy. There are, as we know, time, manner, and place restrictions, and there are noise ordinances that can be enforced, but sometimes these need to give way to more important values like the right to protest. But the problem is that Champ seems to believe this now, suddenly, when he agrees with the cause of the protest, but not when he disagrees with the cause. He did not have the same views about the Freedom Convoy. And the right to protest and expression doesn't hinge on whether or not Paul Champ agrees with the cause of that expression or protest. And I, I look, I can see that there are some differences. The convoy protests were louder and they went on for longer. And I look, I don't know how loud this megaphone was or how long the couple of hours of noise from the megaphone were. Uh, but I don't think that Paul Champ was out there championing the rights of the Freedom Convoy protesters, even at the beginning of that protest, as he is here. And like, I don't even need to give my opinion on Paul Champ's hypocrisy here. Uh, I'll just read some of the replies because they're better than I could come up what I could come up with. So someone said, impressive level of cognitive dissonance. Someone said, you should give a TED talk on hypocrisy and lack of insight. Someone said, who hacked Paul Champ's account and started posting parody? Someone said, aren't you leading a class action against people for honking? Someone said, have you considered changing your last name to Paul Chump? And someone said, nice to see you come over to the Freedom Convoy side. So, like, I don't agree with, or sorry, I don't disagree with Paul Champ's take necessarily on the face of the take. What I disagree with is his his lack of insight, self-awareness, and his extreme hypocrisy here. So, Josh, what's your bad legal take this week? Uh, my bad legal take is it goes to Marie-José Houl, who is the taxpayer-funded federal housing advocate. I don't know if you've ever heard of this position, Christine. Did you know that we have a full-time activist housing advocate I paid for not. by our tax dollars? No, well, it turns out we do. And it looks like what she does most of the time is just tweet about how the federal government that employs her is um, violating the so-called right to housing, a right that courts have been quite clear does not actually exist. And uh, usually she doesn't get much attention, but she did uh, recently get some traction on Twitter by arguing that the city of Edmonton can't evict homeless people from dangerous encampments, even after the city of Edmonton went to court and got an injunction saying that, yes, they can evict people in some cases from encampments because those particular encampments pose a safety risk. And I think we 
we got into this a little bit before, but, um, you know, encampments, they, they're often full of weapons. People are in there overdosing on fentanyl and apparently that's, you know, safer than, um, trying to get them off fentanyl. And, you know, they, they have propane tanks that explode sometimes and catch fire and kill the people in those tents. And it's a very bad situation. And so Edmonton has decided to clear some of them out, but anyway, Poole writes on Twitter, forcible removal of encampments is a violation of human rights and harmful due to the lack of available shelter space. The proposed coordinated actions of the city of Edmonton and the police will force, will violate the inherent rights of indigenous peoples. Solutions to encampments remain simple, ensuring a guaranteed safe place for every unhoused person. Now I'm skeptical this is an indigenous rights issue, but it's this claim she has that there's a right to housing that I want to focus on because it doesn't really make sense. You know, what our constitution protects primarily is negative rights. And that's, that is, they prevent government action like infringements on your freedom of speech or religion or liberty, rather than requiring that governments, um, by which we usually mean taxpayers, need to take some positive steps to provide you with something, to give you something. And there are exceptions like, you know, minority language education, but that's clearly delineated in the text of the constitution. And so, you know, this positive right to housing, it's basically just this communist conception that people who work and create the wealth need to buy houses or homes for everyone else. And um, we can't even seem to properly fund universal health care. So I'm not sure how we're going to fund housing, free housing for everyone. But anyway, regardless of what policy I prefer or uh, cool prefers, it's a very bad legal take to claim that there's a right to housing because this has come up in the courts before. Uh, for example, in the Tanad Yaya case in Ontario, the applicants claimed that the province and the federal government violated the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and also equality by failing to enact policies that reduce or eliminate homelessness. And the majority of the Court of Appeals said, you know, this is not even justiciable. Um, they pointed out that this is a claim for a general freestanding right to adequate housing and that just can't happen because the supreme court has already said we, there's no freestanding positive right to things like healthcare or social assistance so how could there be a right to housing in the words of section 7 and that's right so um that's my bad legal take um joanna i think is as we mentioned is uh is away today so no bad legal take from her but she'll be back next week and that's it for the show. So as usual, we hope you'll rate us, review us, and subscribe. And just a reminder, you can support our work by subscribing to the Canadian Constitution Foundation's YouTube channel, by following us on Twitter, or by visiting our website, theccf.ca, where you can sign up for our Freedom Update newsletter. The CCF is a nonpartisan legal charity funded by your donations, so please go to our website and click the blue Donate button if you can. Thanks for listening.